In Plain Sight is a Health Canada audio series that explores the personal stories of people affected by the opioid crisis. Every day, approximately 11 people die from opioid overdoses in Canada. We see this on the news. We know that it's happening. We know that it's real, yet we tell ourselves that it couldn't happen to the people we know, the people we work with, the people we love, that it couldn't happen to us. The reality is the opioid crisis is happening right before our eyes, in plain sight, and it can affect anyone. There are thousands of stories waiting to be heard. This is where Charlotte's story begins. Hi, my name is Charlotte Smith. I guess my problems really started when I was about, uh, I was almost 13 and my biological mother came to England because she is British but she had moved to Canada and gotten married and uh, she had never been in my life. I was adopted out when I was six months old. When I was about 13 she uh, wanted to find me and, uh, and re-adopt me and take me back into her custody, so she did. She paid for my immigration to Canada, sponsored me in. And uh, it was a pretty devastating transition for me. I was very homesick. I was okay for almost a year, and we were in our honeymoon phase, but after that, uh, everything went downhill. I started cutting my arm and avoiding my biological mother. I stayed out a lot with friends. Uh, I didn't want to go home. I didn't feel like I was wanted there. I had found some recordings that my mother had done of her self-therapy, and she was just sobbing into the recording, saying how I wasn't really like her daughter and how I didn't speak like her and I didn't have the same values as her, and she was clearly devastated by that. As my mental health declined, her behavior towards me also declined. She became very emotionally abusive. Eventually, she dropped me off outside a foster home where I had babysat. This was a few weeks before Christmas when I was 15. I cried for about three days straight. After about a week of being in this foster home where I wasn't a ward of CAS, but my mother was paying rent to the parents to keep me there, which had been cleared by CAS, I was so scared of being alone. You know, I didn't have any family in Canada besides my biological mother, and I thought if things don't work out at this foster home, I'm just going to be completely alone in a country where I, I really don't feel I belong. So their marriage dissolved. The foster home was completely destroyed by that. I ended up living on my own, on and off with that man, and in and out of horse farms that I had also volunteered at when I was 13 and 14 since coming to Canada. So horses and that experience really provided great opportunity for me for housing because I had the experience mucking stalls. When I came to back to these places as a 16-year-old homeless girl, they would take me in and let me work there for a room. But I also started using a lot of ecstasy. I had never done any drugs before being kicked out of my house, but after that, everything just seemed even more hopeless than it was before. It was just a way to cope. It was a way to cope with being homesick from England, and then it was a way to cope with the loss of my newly found biological mother. So at just 18 years old, Charlotte left Canada and returned to England with no life skills or experience living on her own. But the ties she had to Canada began to tighten and she soon found herself leaving England 
to return to the only life she really knew. Then things went further downhill because I had failed at going back to my home. I had come back to Canada and now I, the farms were out of reach for me. So I just started doing more drugs. I met some people who were prescribed Oxycontin and I started taking that and at first I thought it was great because it allowed me greater strength capacity. I got a job in construction and I was able to keep up with the men. I was able to lift the drywall sheets, everything, and keep that energy going all day because of these pills. I didn't realize that I was addicted to them. They also gave me a lot of confidence and I moved in with a woman who was addicted to Oxycontin and her son and I taught her how to to crush them up and snort them because that's what I'd already always done with ecstasy. I didn't realize that that would make her addiction, which I still, I didn't realize that even she was addicted, but it, it took her addiction to prescription pills to that next level because she started going through them so fast because the high is more intense, but it's shorter. And of course you build up resistance too. So then we started having to go through all of her pills and finding ways to buy more. And when I didn't have them, I would be very sick and the whole world would be gray, like apart from the physical sickness. And the woman I was living with ended up going to detox because of that. And I felt very responsible. She ended up losing her, her child as well for a period. But when she came out of detox, she came out with a boyfriend who used crack cocaine. And I then fell into smoking crack with her and her boyfriend. And it was fairly easy because it, it wasn't my first time seeing crack. I used to uh, use online dating sites to secure drives, places to pick up these ecstasy pills. So I would tell guys I was going to sleep with them if they would give me a drive so that I could go and get my pills. And one time, the gentleman who was driving me around uh, had offered me crack. And I spent, I think, four or five days in his apartment, just high out of my mind, just not fun, paranoid, scared, but lighting that pipe and taking the next hit and the next hit and the next hit, even though I was shaking and sweating and sketched out. And I got out of that apartment and I thought, wow, and it took me a few days to recover. I thought, I'm never going to ever do that again. And I hope I never see it again. And I didn't think I would. But by the time I saw crack again, when I was 19 now, things had gone so far downhill, I really felt like I had nothing left to lose. I had no family. I had no real future prospects. I had dropped out of high school. There was no hope of returning to my family in England. I felt like I was a complete failure. So I, so I smoked the crack for the next three years. Every day, the only times when I didn't was if I was in jail or when I was working to try to get more drugs, which was through shoplifting or sex work. And of course, during this time, I also kept doing Oxycontin, uh, but I also started uh, injecting Oxycontin and uh, morphine and cocaine as well, which was a very terrifying experience actually even though I did it it's not that it didn't scare me I would go into these houses where I would see people searching for veins for hours just poking needles into their arms just trying to find that that hit and having abscesses and having seizures and just these using dirty needles sharing needles and as shocking as that was I honestly just felt as if I was finished. My life was never getting a, 
be what it could have been if perhaps I hadn't come to Canada or if my mother hadn't kicked me out. So I followed suit and I and I, I used dirty needles and I shared them and I did all of those things. And uh, really, the only reason that uh, I got out of drug use was through pure luck. And that's what's so frustrating about the system as it is right now is that there's no standardized state-sponsored help for people to get out of addiction or homelessness. There's no reliable solution. Everybody sort of is left to find their own way, which I was lucky enough to do. Because one of the last times that I went to jail, I knew that if I got out of jail and went back, picked up the pipe or the needle, that I was going to end up with AIDS or HIV. A lot of my friends at the time had one of those diseases or the other. So I called a friend and he agreed that when I got out of jail that I could move in with him. So I went out there and I didn't come back into the city at all for probably almost a year. And in that time, somebody helped me get a job at a horse farm. And every day that I walked into that farm, I saw the horses and I knew that if I were to pick up a pipe, if I were to go into Ottawa and to go downtown, I would lose everything, all the trust that I had built up with these people and all the, the privileges that I was given to care for these animals. So I was able to, to stay clean. Then I did a year of college, which now I'm starting my master's in September. I've got, had many opportunities to conduct research on populations that I used to be a part of, like sex workers, uh, drug addicts, and homeless youth. So finally I can sort of see a, a future for myself. And it's a future where I believe that I'll hopefully be able to help some of those people that I've left behind. Because I definitely do have survivor's guilt, PTSD, from uh, the experiences of being homeless and being addicted to hard drugs. So that's something that I still struggle with. I have a lot of nightmares where somebody will be overdosing and I can't save them. Um, and those happen all the time. And that's something that I just have to continue to try to put behind me. I also still struggle with active addiction. So I've been sort of somewhat on the straight and narrow for five years. Addiction is very powerful and I, I seem to not be able to escape it. And I wish that I, something could take it from my mind, but so far I haven't found a way to do that. And there are so many memories that I have of using in Ottawa that wherever I go, it's just constantly in my face. And I know that addiction and drug use is invisible to a lot of people that have not experienced it. But when you have experienced it, it's unavoidable. And wherever you go, there's reminders of it, and there are triggers that cause you to have urges to use, and uh, they can be very hard to deal with. And there's not necessarily a lot of help for that beyond, you know, weekly meetings with counselors or group sessions with other former users like NA. But really, it's something that's always there inside you. And, and even I've watched my friends die. I, People are dying every day in Ottawa from opioid use. And yeah, as painful as that, that is for me to see those people dying, it's still not enough of a deterrent for me to not use when, when that urge strikes me.
And that makes me feel disgusted at myself. And I don't know what the solution is. 15 minutes. That's all it took for Charlotte to take us on a life journey. She then shared reflections on her life, how the world came to treat and perceive her, how she began to see herself differently too. One thing I noticed when I was using crack and heroin and Oxycontin and morphine on the streets was that you're no longer be treated like a young girl. You become seen as responsible for yourself, as an adult who is making their, conscious of their decisions and, and just simply choosing the wrong path, which I very much felt like I was not an adult and that I was still had the mentality of when I was 15. So to be treated like an adult was difficult because when you go, say, to your social worker for welfare check and they are very unsympathetic that you've been using or that you can't find a place to live, it's very damaging. And it's awful because you so badly want people to see that you are a 19-year-old or 20-year-old girl and that you need help, but they tend to view you like just the way that they see any other street user, and then that it is your fault for the position that you're in. And it's very uncomfortable to ask for help because you don't feel like you deserve it because you start to think that I am the cause of my own demise here. I did do this to myself which is to a point true, but there are also a lot of other complicated issues that played into me taking that choice to use drugs. And I think that that barrier that comes up between you as a young drug user and the rest of society, it causes you to, to look for belonging in other ways outside of the mainstream. So you come, become very close to the older people on the street, the older addicts who are around you, and you forge some sort of community with them. But it's certainly not a healthy community. And that's not because of the individuals themselves. They may be very nice people, and they've also come from so many different backgrounds. But the lifestyle associated with drug use on the street is very toxic. So I met people who were actively engaged in sex work and who were not honest about that, you know, when I first came on the scene. So they would set me up on dates with men who I honestly, naively, stupidly thought were maybe wanted to date me and they were not they were paying the people I knew to have sex with me and I had just had no idea and that's what I mean by that I was a child even though people were treating me like I was an adult I was very naive and people wouldn't believe me when I said I didn't know they were pimping me out they would just think that oh you're a slut but no I really didn't know and when I did realize and I tried to kill myself. The girl that I was staying with, who was a IV drug user, she ended up being all I had. I felt safe with her. And then when I realized that she was selling me to men 
and that she really didn't care or that she did care about me, but her need for drugs was so powerful that she was willing to risk my life or my safety to get those drugs. I was devastated and I stabbed my arm multiple times with a carving knife and she had to call an ambulance and because of that she wouldn't let me go back to her place because I was a heat bag then. Because of me she had had to call 911 which is a serious offense in this subculture of drug use and homelessness and sex work because police are pretty awful to drug users in my experience and it's very hard, even if you're watching your friend overdose, you do not want to call 911 because you don't want to get in trouble. You also don't want to call 911 because you know that the person laying on the ground does not want to wake up and see the police in their face and be taken to jail because of their addiction. And that is a call I've had to make. And I tell you that I did leave my friend on the floor until her lips were blue before I called 911 because I was scared of the police. And the time that I tried to kill myself when I was first realizing that I'm in this subculture where people can only care up until they get their next hit. When I was released from the hospital in Quebec, uh, I was covered in blood. This is another example of how you're not treated like a young girl. When, I, when they took me in, they, they were basically laughing at me. They weren't taking it seriously that I had tried to kill myself and they, they told me that I just, you know, I was just in drug-induced psychosis basically and that I was jonesing, that I just needed another hit and that's why I was acting out. They didn't give me even any bus fare. They let me, they released me to a place where, I, you know, I, out, outside of the hospital where I had no idea where I was and I had to find my own way back uh, to this girl's house, not knowing that she would also reject me from there, but just the lack of compassion. I know to them I was wasting their time because they had real people with what is considered real health issues that aren't addiction to deal with. But I really did need their help. And if an adult, I feel like, would have treated me like I was a young girl who needed help, things could have been different. But they didn't even try. And that all contributed to me just giving up more and more I was worthless. I uh, walked all through the streets of Ottawa in those bloody clothes, and nobody offered me any help, except a bus driver let me on for free eventually. And the only places that I could go were crack houses. And I call them crack houses, but these are houses where there's a lot of prescription drug use. It's not all crack. It's all kinds of drugs, a lot of opioid use, a lot of needles. And those are the people that ended up taking care of me and letting me sleep on their couches with their bed bugs until I was healed enough to get my stitches out and uh, carry on about my business. And by then, there was no other options outside of sex work because I was too awful looking to get away with shoplifting. So when you go into shops, when you're looking clean and tidy, they don't notice you. And you can get away with a lot more than when you walk in in dirty clothes and scabs all over your face and arms. You get noticed very quickly. So sex work becomes one of the only options because men, and not all men, but a lot of men don't seem to mind if you are dirty and if you have scabs and if you are sick. Every other part of your identity beyond drugs and prostitute 
and homeless are erased. And that's what people see. They see an addict and they just, they can justify many actions against you by that. They can justify throwing you in jail or kicking you out or having sex with you when you are clearly in no shape to be doing that because you're just an addict and you're no longer a young woman who is scared, who needs help, who is a newcomer to Canada. You're just seen as disposable. I don't think that people treat young girls who are not homeless addicts the way that they treat homeless young addicted girls. And I wish that that is something that could be changed. So I know a lot of men that have done terrible things to me have daughters at home that they would kill somebody for doing the same thing to. But because I made the choice to put a needle in my arm, I lost all the privileges that many humans in Canada do get. The rights over their own body to not be touched while they're sleeping. And just because the I made the choice to sell my body or because I made that choice because it was all, the only choice that was left to me doesn't mean that I can't be raped because I, and I did get raped and there are a lot of other girls who are out there getting raped too. And there's just no respect for addicts. As far as she has progressed in life, sobriety is still a source of shame for Charlotte. And she is always aware of what the world expects and what is realistically possible. People do tend to think that when you stop being an addict, you, you're supposed to at least stop doing all drugs. And I think that's taught in a lot of these recovery practices. But for me, that's not the case. And I think it is a, a dangerous misconception. Because if you tell me that I can't smoke pot or drink alcohol, for the rest of my life. I'm going to be very anxious and panicky. Just the thought of that, to not have that kind of safety net of more socially acceptable drugs. When I first got off the streets, marijuana really helped me stay away from going back to the hard stuff. It also helped me sleep at night. I find that I have less nightmares. I find that I have less reoccurring traumatic thoughts about my past when I'm smoking marijuana. And I am ashamed of that pot use to a certain extent because while it is legalized and there is a lot less social stigma around it, I think or I feel like in professional worlds that it might delegitimize me in the field of research because I, I use it so often. I feel like people may think that I am not a, a serious professional or they might worry that I'm conducting research stoned. I don't use it for the day-to-day -day activities. I use it as a crutch at night. Um, what I hope to do is transform the research process into one that can be actually part of prevention and intervention for youth homelessness and addiction. So by helping to facilitate positive, meaningful youth engagement with youth who are at risk of homelessness and addiction or who are experiencing those things and trying to send the message that when we're in 
places of privilege like I am now, like each interaction that I have with a youth who is experiencing hard times can be a positive one. It can be more than just a simple interview where I'm siphoning knowledge from them about their experience to publish towards my own career. I can try to offer them resources. I can try to offer them hope. And at the very least, I can ensure that I am giving them cash dollars for their participation in my studies rather than gift cards, which are not a form of harm reduction the way that I see cash is. Because if I'm giving cash to my participants then and they need drugs, then it's my line of thinking that they'll have to do one less awful thing to get those drugs because they have that $20. And I think there's a perception that when you're giving addicts money, you're enabling them. I think you need to respect people's wishes too. If somebody's asking you for money, it's because they need money and it's not up to you what they do with that money. And I think that you can provide some semblance of safety by giving them that money rather than a gift card, which will not help them get the drugs they need and which will mean that they still have to go walking down streets trying to catch the eyes of drivers who will stop and ask them if they want a date. I hope that uh, in all the research that I do, I can engage meaningfully with youth. I can get them excited about the possibility of returning to school or following dreams outside of school that are off of the streets and away from drugs. And I think from the youth that I have worked with so far, they do appreciate that I come from a background similar to their own. And they do seem to be more willing to talk to me about more intimate details of their experience because of that. And they've told me that. And they seem also to be excited that I'm doing so well. And I think it gives them a sense of hope that, well, maybe, you know, the future doesn't have to look homeless and addicted. Problematic opioid use is devastating Canadian lives. The numbers are tragic and staggering. These are the stories behind the numbers. This crisis has a face. It is the face of a friend, a coworker, a family member. Meeting those eyes and seeing our own reflection is the first step toward ending the stigma that often prevents people who use drugs from receiving help. To learn more about the opioid crisis, visit canada.ca slash opioids. This audio series is a production of Health Canada. The opinions expressed by individuals on this program are those of the individuals and not those of Health Canada. Health Canada has not validated the accuracy of any statements made by the individuals on this program. Reproduction of this material, in whole or in part, for non-commercial purposes is permitted under the standard terms of use for Government of Canada digital content.